It's good to be with you. I'd like to invite those with children up through grade three to, if you'd like to have them in children's church, they're welcome to go down now. If you want to keep them with you, please do. For the rest of you, if you would turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Kurt Parker, it's good to be with you, be back with you. Last week I was out, special thanks to Bill Tussie and presenting Gideon Ministry and bringing a, a potent reminder of our responsibilities as it comes to giving out the Word of God. I appreciate you, Bill. Thank you for the blessing of having you here. It's such a joy. I've said this over and over again. We have so many godly men who serve here. It's such a joy to know that when I'm gone or when I'm down there and somebody's up here, there's no change. There's no lack, and it's a blessing, and the guys are so... Uh, the Lord carries them along to minister in the Word, and so I'm so grateful for that at our church. So if you'd look, if you would, God's Plan for a Healthy Church is our series. If you've not been here with us, then uh, don't think you won't get anything out of it. The Lord's really faithful about reading His Word and then teaching us straight from it, and that's what we'll do today and trust Him and His Holy Spirit to do that. We're in the highs and lows of ministry. That's really chapter 6. And we, as we started that, we kind of gave it that title, Highs and Lows of Ministry. It's easy to see uh, why it's called that. And dealing with hardship in particular is where we are. But I'd like you to begin our time in the Word with just, um, in this part of our worship service, just reading the passage together, beginning in verse 1, we'll go all the way down to verse 18. So if you get a copy, uh, you can find that on your, your digital copy. We'll be in New American Standard if you want to be in the same translation. Or if you want a hard copy, they're around you in the seats. Or whatever one you read and study. Uh, that's the one you can read, and I'll give you verse cues. We'll stay together. Second Corinthians 6, 1. And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Verse 2, for he says, At the acceptable time, I listened to you, and on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Verse 3, giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, verse 4, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, verse 5, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, verse 6, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, verse 7, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, verse 8, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, verse 9, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things, verse 11, our mouth has spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Our heart is opened wide. Verse 12, you are not restrained by us, but you are restrained in your own affections. Verse 13, now in a like exchange, I speak to, as to children. Open wide to us also. Verse 14, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light and darkness? Verse 15, or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Verse 16, or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, verse 17, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, 
and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you, verse 18, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. If we close out that passage together, you can see, as we've continued in this study of chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians, we're tracking through Paul's encouragement to the church in the highs and lows of ministry. And we've put some headings on there, as you have uh, seen already, experiences and hardship, and we talk about actual things that he's gone through, and then now we're going through responses in hardship, and then we're going to go through ministry ironies, and you saw those really as it picked up in verse 8, glory, dishonor, evil report, good report, and these are part and parcel of doing the ministry, things that uh, seem to not go together, seem to go together so well in the ministry. So Paul is uh, taking us through the highs and lows of ministry, how he keeps his balance, if you will, uh, in the difficult times. He starts the passage out uh, when he says, working together with him, knowing that we have ministry that God says he'll do with us. Don't uh, urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So less than uh, perhaps an expected response from the church, what do we do? And so that really is this passage. And I think it, it becomes very obvious as we look at it in, from the light uh, that we have of Paul's ministry. And if you've been with us, the last time we were together, we saw that the character trait of sacrifice or self-denial at the end of verse 5 that we saw there, uh, verse 5 starts, it says, in beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labors, and these three, sleeplessness, hunger, uh, and uh, in labors. And so sacrifice, self-denial at the end of verse 5, it's an important one in the life of Paul one that is required of the believer as they give their life away in the course of ministry and one that commends Paul to the church, one that commends you uh, in your ministry. And, and here they work their way out, Paul says, in labors and sleeplessness and hunger. Uh, we just go over this very quickly because it's where we left off several weeks ago. In labors, that's the Greek noun kupos, that's toil. If we read that labors, realize it's talking about toil and weariness. So hard work, if you will, not just doing something and getting it done uh, so this is not pushed on him. Uh, the other ones were perhaps forced on him, the difficulties and the hardships and the afflictions and the trials and all of that pushed on him. These are things he chooses to do. It's a great example of what it looks like to minister in the church as we saw last time. It's the toil that takes everything you have and you're worn out by it. That's how he worked. He endured it. And so Paul says, you know, that's part of, that's part of the ministry. It's part of how I handle the highs and lows, just working very hard. Uh, it, it's the toil that takes everything you have and you're worn down. That's how it worked. He endured it. He, he, he looked at, a, you know, we looked at a lot of passages last time that gave us the sense of what ministry is supposed to look like. And we won't go through all of them again, but they're very relevant to the church, as you can see. Uh, I would encourage you to catch up with that foundation by going back and catching the worship time from November 3rd online. But people bring a lot of bad workplace habits into the ministry life at church, the no-call, no-show types of responses, just doing ministry whenever you feel like it and not doing it when you don't. And of course, that is the opposite of how Paul would have modeled that. But Paul modeled a voluntary response in his labor that was, as we saw, not lagging behind in diligence from Romans 12, verse 11. And I think Bill mentioned that a couple times last time. It has to do with general work in the ministry, bringing about the master's business. And the essence of the verse is what needs to be done needs to be done now. Uh, not a long action line, but a short action line you know, own your ministry, uh, take responsibility for it. And Paul indicates that from this observation, there should be some haste, there should be some urgency, there should be some intensity in this ministry that we have of reconciliation. We also saw that labor and ministry must have a fervency about it. He called it fervent in spirit. Uh, it's a very important word as we see. It has to do with boiling or boiling over, but it's an attitude you're bringing to bear. These are choices, beloved. This is how we come to the ministry, bring an attitude of overflowing 
because you can be diligent and have really a poor attitude about it. You can always show up but really not be very uh, excited. But when you're laboring diligently and, and with much endurance and you're excited about it, you're boiling over about it, that's so refreshing. Again, a choice of how we do ministry. And things get accomplished when believers uh, do labor like that. And then, uh, you know, you're an ambassador. You are the Lord's bond slave. And, and the way that will come across is directly connected to your level of labor and, the, and your dedication. So in other words, when people look at you, as they look at a bond slave, as they look at an ambassador, uh, it's going to come across what that looks like connected to your level of labor and your level of dedication. So you look at yourself. I say this a lot. If everybody labored like you did in the church, would we be able to function in the ministries that we have? Or if everybody gave like you give, would we be able to do the things that we do? And that's a very real way to look at it, okay? And it, you, you can say, well, you know, I, I'm doing what I can or whatever. The bottom line, that may or may not be the case, but the bottom line is if everybody labors like you, how do we do? And if everybody gives like you, how do we do? And if everybody's fervent like you are, how are we? And how's the ministry going to go? And so that's what that looks like, and that's how you can own that. And, you know, we serve his cause. We serve his purposes. That's what it means to be uh, an ambassador. His kingdom, his people, we work along with him. So what does that look like? Is he pleased with working along with you? Is that the level you think that he would expect you to be involved? And so these are all real ways you can put it on yourself, okay? And, and you may be uh, answering Yes, I'm doing it the correct way. Yes, if they gave like I gave, we'd be okay. Yes, if they served like I served, we'd be okay. And that's great. And, and I assume that's probably the, the, the likelihood. But this is the way we put that on. You know, I, I'm not committed to the church by just doing things when I feel like it. I'm not committed to the church by trying to enhance my own reputation. Uh, laboring hard until you're worn down, doing what God has asked you to do. That's what it means to be a slave, whatever it takes, see. And so that's what that looks like then when we put that on. Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians 2.9, he says this. He says, for you recall, brethren, in other words, you know this, and so call this back to your mind, our, this is our word, labor, and mark this, hardship, two things together, labor and hardship, and that's the word for difficulties from which there's no relief. We looked at that. That's part of the thing that comes on Paul. Hardship, which means uh, an, an atmosphere in the ministry, perhaps, where it's not going to change. It's going to be pretty much like this. Well, that's not an excuse not to be fervent. It's not an excuse not to work hard. It's just this is what it's going to look like. And so Paul says, recall our labor and our hardship, how working night and day, so he was busy about the ministry of reconciliation, and that took a lot of effort. And also he was probably busy about the work, as we saw last time, of providing for his physical needs so he could do the work of the ministry. So he says, working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So translated, ministry is hard work. I mean, we can't really read it any other way. Of course, if we, if we looked at the modern church, typically that would not be how it was reflected, but the ministry is hard work, and Paul is commended to them because he has endured in working hard in every ministry he was involved with, in every church he did it voluntarily, and just obviously God has that same requirement for you. He expects you to make the decision to labor hard and follow through. And we saw the next one, too. That was in sleeplessness, Paul says, and sleeplessness Agrupnia, it's, it really actually is translated more often watchfulness, the idea of remaining awake because you're not able to get to sleep. It, it could be from anxiety. It could be because of external circumstances, it, because you're ministering in the day and the night and it's robbing some of your sleep, maybe staying up during the night to pray for a situation, working out a plan for ministry, dealing with uh, difficulties or praying for someone or being awakened in the night to pray for some hard situation someone's going through. That, that all falls under that. That's what ministry looks like. That's what bearing one another's burdens looks like. We talked about that in the Be the Church class this morning. Bearing one another's burdens is praying for one another and, and ministering to one another and, and helping one another and all those things. 
And so uh, that's a choice, again, which is why it's included in this section by Paul. He includes it here because it's a sacrifice and it's something lost uh, perhaps in local church ministry, uh, perhaps as much uh, as it shouldn't be. People don't show because they're tired. You know, they throw that on someone else. But, you know, when you don't show because you're tired, the people you're going to minister to, they're still there waiting for you to be there. And that's just landing on someone. And so, you know, how fervent are you? How important is it to them? You know, the correct response is really a matter of maturity. See, And so it's to the degree uh, that you're mature that you'll begin to do these kinds of things. Because we see that Paul calls on this issue to commend himself to the church. So we know it's a reality in ministry because he loses sleep over them and he does it voluntarily. It goes without saying that he is doing it with the right heart attitude and then the Lord expects that uh, from you. And so you're going to do it voluntarily or from the other side, you won't let a lack of sleep deter you from doing things that need to be done. So this last one, and these are just very basic things and we're going to see there's nothing earth shattering here. As we go through these passages, these are just very straightforward and seem to make a lot of sense. And perhaps what we brought to the workplace early on when we first started. Maybe not so much anymore. We figured out the pattern and when your overseer is going to see you and then you can kind of do your thing and nobody's going to know. But the fact of the matter is when you start a new job, you're usually pretty diligent about it, right? And, and we understand some of these things. Well, these all apply. Paul's very clear about that. And so we also saw in hunger, that's the last one here that was the voluntary one that Paul chose. Uh, it has to do with a verb that means to abstain. Some translations have in fastings and that's probably the closest one. Uh, in fastings is the idea that when Paul denies himself, he's denying himself to establish a connection between he and the Lord that is really still in play today, uh, a time of fasting where you deny yourself uh, for a certain amount of time all things that satisfy physically so that you can be connected on a spiritual level with the Lord, very common in the, in the New Testament, very common throughout the Word of God. Uh, and then uh, perhaps for a longer period of time, you just figure out what you're going to abstain from and then you go that distance while you're really seeking the Lord. Paul says this is part of what it looks like to do ministry. Uh, a decision maybe you need to make uh, to know the Lord's will in some certain thing. Maybe it's a sin issue you're struggling with and you want to know, you want the Lord to know you're serious. So you're going you're gonna to fast, ask the Lord to help you uh, get on top of that. A ministry effort you want to pray about, all those kinds of things. So Paul calls this issue. He does this. So he commends himself. He says, I'm committed to you because I do this for you. So obviously that becomes the case uh, where Paul says, you know, this is, um, this is the Lord's requirement for you. If we see that in Paul's life then that is also to be expected that we're going to lose some meals during the course of the ministry because you're going to spend some time fasting or you're going to be too busy to eat. And just very basic stuff. See. Just kind of coming back and saying, you know, you look at me, Paul says, you look at me and you've got a lot of critical things to say. Listen, but I've, I've got a clear conscience as I've ministered to you. I've been a galley slave. I brought what the Lord has prepared to you without spilling it. I've done those kinds of things. And, and I have, I commend myself to you because I have lost sleep and because I have labored hard and because I have missed meals and I've, I've fasted over this thing. Regardless, perhaps, of what their criticism may have been, uh, it's just very basic stuff. This is what it looks like. And the whole point of this is he's commended himself by his endurance through this labor and through the sleeplessness and through the fasting and the afflictions and the hardships, as we saw as we back up in the, and the pressures and bearing the marks and the imprisonments and the instability. That's no, that's no excuse. Instability in your life, no excuse for not faithfully discharging. It's part of what the Lord brings to you sometimes, not knowing what the next step is, unsure what the future is going to hold. Uh, the Lord brings that to us and brings that pressure on us to bring us into purity and into uh, commendation from him. So, uh, you stick with it and you do this and, and bring that in a measure that uh, is appropriate to the ministry, then you're commended in your ministry. That's what it looks like. So when he, uh, you know, we ask the question just very simply from Paul's introduction, you know, uh, 
but in everything committing ourselves as servants of God, in verse 4, we just ask the question, how, you, how can you commend yourself? Uh, how can you make something show? How, how is it clear? Uh, as soon as Tanner tastes, uh, you know, we were able to answer that question as Paul lists off some of the reasons why they should recognize that he is a servant of God. And it becomes very clear then as we work through it, that's what that looked like. And, and he pointed out some of the things he'd been through and how he'd handled them. And part of the, Paul's intent in the instruction is so that the Corinthian church would, be, would commend him. And so it's an active letter. You know, I'm telling you this. And this is actually Paul writing and saying, I'm commended to you. And they're reading it. And he wants them to respond. So it's an active letter to them. And we get to read it after the fact. But Paul's actually appealing to them in that way. And, but during that process, we, we get to be informed about how to go about that and how to manage hardship and all of that. Okay? So again, the general heading for the first nine circumstances that Paul uses to commend his ministry is in much endurance. Uh, hupomone, it's the word translated patient endurance 29 times in the New Testament. Uh, patient endurance then in whatever comes. Patient endurance in whatever comes. That's what has took us all the way through the first nine experiences in hardship, and it's going to take us into the next nine responses to hardship, which is what we're going to begin right now. So look there, if you would, in verse 6 of your copy of God's Word, 2 Corinthians 6, 6. Verse 6 says, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit. So you can see these are responses. Before it was actual experiences in hardship. Now these are the responses that are going to be part and parcel of commending you to the ministry, committing Paul to them. So in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, verse 7, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. So if you kind of think about it this way, in the negative side, we can see just very simply that the minister of God is commended by his ability to endure the hostility and the hardship that may come in the course of ministry. And those things may come as a result of circumstances. They may come from enemies of the truth. They may come from difficult people. But either way, any of those ways, the minister remains faithful. Okay, That's the negative side. Those hardships that came along and the ones that he willingly brought on himself, uh, that is really from the negative side or the lows, if you will. He's commended by his ability, enduring the hostility and hardship that may come as a course of ministry. You can find that on the back of your bulletin if you're taking notes. Now, on the positive side, and we're going to see this as we work through it today and next week, on the positive side, we'll see that the minister of God is commended by, here it is, never wavering from these responses to hardship, the ones we just read, okay? By never wavering from these responses to hardship. So all the positives that were there in verse 6 and 7, verses 4 and 5 talk about the negatives, and verses 6 and 7 talk about the positives. But the commendation, beloved, the commendation is the same. The minister endures through all, all of them. It doesn't matter what the situation is. It doesn't matter what the difficulty may be, what, is, what the attack may be. He just endures. That's how Paul committed. He said, listen, I've done this and I'm committed to you. And so we get that too and we realize that's how you're committed and you do your ministry. So these next nine are all choices of response, okay? We can choose to respond differently, but the more our responses look like this, then the more we're assured of our sanctification and our growth. You understand? It's, it's much like Romans chapter 12, the last part of the chapter, when we talk about our position in Christ and what that looks like. So you're going to go all over a list here. And, and I would just say to you now, as I said to you then, 
uh, you may go through this list and begin to check them off and say, yes, these things are my responses. And be very encouraged in the, your walk with the Lord and your spiritual uh, understanding of the Word of God and, and the sanctification that's occurring. Or perhaps you'll go through some of them and you'll say, I'm doing okay. And then you get to one and you're saying, well, I'm not doing that great on that one or whatever. And that would be typical. But that's why the Word of God is so valuable to us because we begin to see what the responses are to look like. And then we begin to, what does the Word of God say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? And then you begin to look like that, okay? That's your choice because the Holy Spirit's there to empower you to now obey the Word of God when you never could before, before you were redeemed. So the positive side is just you're commended to God, commended to the ministry by never wavering in these responses to hardship. And these are all choices. So just obviously these responses have to do with maturity. But mark this, beloved, okay? They have to do with maturity. And I want you to make sure you understand this. These responses are not geared for the super-Christian whatever that may be, okay? Because that's not really a classification, but it's one perhaps we generate in our own mind. Well, that's somebody else who's really committed to the ministry. These responses are for everyone, see? These responses are part of the preparation that sanctification brings to the life of the believer to equip them for the highs and the lows of the ministry of reconciliation, okay? So the Holy Spirit wants to equip you in this way he wants you to understand what this looks like, so you'll be ready for the highs and lows, okay? The responses will be appropriate to uh, someone who is mature. The position of an ambassador in Christ. How many are ambassadors of Christ? All of you. See, all the hands go up right there. So, as we've said many times before, they will be true in the life of the believer, and so their manifestation is then a matter of degree, Okay? So if this is the reality of the believer, if this is what sanctification looks like, then in your life, it's a matter of degree. And that's where the Holy Spirit goes to work with your own understanding and begins to point out what degree or level they're being manifested in your life. Now, let's look at the first one. And again, the first, uh, first of three sets of three. So Paul just kind of puts this in a very easy format for us to grab. So let's look at the first one. That's um, verse six. It's impurity in knowledge in patience. And of course, we're going to move slowly through this. Uh, sometimes we can move more quickly through passages of Scripture, but every time he says one of these words, that has an application to us. And so I think it's worthwhile to, you know, if every word uh, is what the Lord has uh, written for us to know, then these are important words if there are any. So impurity in knowledge and patience. And the answer to how Paul deals with the highs and lows of ministry and, and such a wider range of hardships. And so he tells us uh, through his responses, believers then are enabled to overcome than when they develop their spirituality. So that's not a surprise, is it? So when hardship comes and difficulty comes, you're going to be able to overcome these things and work your way through them in such a way that makes the Lord look great to the degree that you have developed yourself spiritually. So if you don't read your Bible, if it's pretty much sets on the shelf all week and the only time you each actually hear the Bible, which you don't open while we're studying, uh, is when I say it, then don't expect to be spiritually mature. That's just how that works. It's, it's not some mysterious way that you become spiritual. The only way that you become spiritual is you take the word of God, what it says, and then you begin to apply it to your life as you understand it over a protracted period of time. That's how you grow. That's why, you know, uh, the Bible says that, um, uh, that uh, gray hair is the glory of an old man when it comes with righteousness, right? So you can be, in other words, you can be old in the faith, but it's not, it's not your glory if it didn't come along with what? A sanctification process that changed you, see? So that's our goal, isn't it? I mean, we don't want to have gray hair and then be immature in the faith. That'd be a, that'd be a shame, wouldn't it? And so we want to walk in such a way and understand in such a way that begin to put this on. 
So don't tune this out. This is important. And of course, you're captured by what I have to study for myself, okay? So I'm not just teaching you. I have to teach me first, and I have to wrestle through this in my office for weeks before we get to it, okay? So the first one is impurity. Impurity. That's the Greek noun hagnotes. It's rendered from the adjective hagnos, which means what? Holy. You've heard that before, haven't you? Set apart from defilement, set apart from the stain of sin, so not contaminated. It's a very comprehensive word, and it's at the top of the positive list because it is really so very, very important. And I don't think that's a surprise to you, that you are to be in purity in your walk with the Lord. And here's another thing to remember. It's not that Paul didn't sin. So we're not talking about sinless perfection because we know that that's not a reality for us until we shed this body and we have a glorified one. There's a battle going on. Your body has appetite that it had before you were born again. And through the course of sanctification, you begin to put to death the deeds of the flesh. But it's an active battle, isn't it? On a regular basis where you do battle. People say, well, how long before it's not that hard? I'm not there yet. I'm 55. And there's people much older than me, and I know that they would say they're not there yet either. It's an active battle, but you are told to be in purity. Your responses are impurity. And so it's not that Paul didn't sin. It's not that I don't sin or that you don't. It's just that Paul dealt with those things so that there could be no reproach, no blame, no shame. There's no stain. See? It's an active, active intercourse between you and the Lord. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and that's a process and when you came to faith and repentance you began that process of repenting and asking the Lord for forgiveness which continues to this very minute so that's an encouragement okay an active battle that takes captive every thought that's the whole idea okay an ongoing interaction so the word is rendered pure in a number of passages and we can get that sense of this pattern and we're talking about patterns of life so in Philippians chapter 4 we'll as it's our habit, we'll look at a few illustrations that can help us grasp really the foundation of this word. Paul says to the, the church in Philippi, he says, finally, brethren, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything excellent, if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So there's the direct uh, admonition to do that thing. Whatever is pure, we're supposed to dwell on. There's our word, okay? Whatever is then set apart from the stain of sin, not contaminated. Those are the things we're supposed to dwell on. And that's, that's a life habit, isn't it? I mean, it's not just like, well, I hope I can do that. That's dwell on those things that are pure. So what's that mean? Well, that means if you have a habit of not doing that, then that's where that interacts with your own lifestyle. If you're not dwelling on things that are unstained with, from sin and all of that, then make that your habit. And you'll begin to be have a response that's in purity. Why? Because you begin to dwell on those things that are pure. Okay, that just makes really good sense, doesn't it? And verse 9 says, the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and there you go, it goes right, it folds back into our passage. Why do we, isn't this just for Paul? Um, no. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, what? Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you, right? 
I mean, you don't lose the Lord's presence in your life because you're not dwelling on pure things, but it'll be obvious that he's there when you are, okay? Now, dwell is a present middle imperative. So dwell on these things, present middle imperative. So this is, this is a non-negotiable command from the Lord, present middle imperative, okay? Middle means you're actively participating in it. Imperative means this is something you do. So if you want to know when Paul gives you a command and he expects you to act on it, there it is. No wiggle room. People want to know, what's the Lord's will in my life? Well, here's one. Here's one, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's of good repute, if there's anything excellent, anything worthy of praise, there it is. So, negotiable command from, can you put the, this mic on right here? So, this response then is what? It's a choice, see? And one of them is to dwell on those things that are pure. This is just so very practical, see? This is how sanctification goes to work. So do you want to grow in respect to maturity in Christ and then begin choosing those things, see? So in particular here for our passage, dwell on things that are unstained, things that are pure, those things of purity, holy things, see? Now, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, it tells us much the same thing as it instructs elders about putting leaders in place in the church. Uh, it says, Verse 22, it says, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and therefore share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself, mark this, this is our word, hagnos, free, keep yourself free from sin. So same word we've been talking about. This is as, he, as uh, Paul tells Timothy how to, how to appoint elders, put leaders in place in the church. He's like, don't put them in place too early. What's the implication? So, because you may not know them, see, and you don't know what pattern of life they have. And you don't want to put somebody in leadership in place when they have a pattern of life that isn't unstained from sin, and then you end up getting that inside leadership. So he says, don't lay hands on anyone too hastily and therefore share in their responsibility. So in other words, you jump to putting somebody in leadership right away, you share in the responsibility of what? Of the impurity that they're going to bring into the church flock, and that's a bad thing, see? So keep yourself, mark this, free from sin. You have to take some time with it. He says, when you're putting leadership in place, you don't want to put somebody in with sinful life patterns. Otherwise, you're going to share in that responsibility and leading someone else into sinful life patterns. And that's not what you want. You're going the, you're going the opposite direction that you want to go. So, so, trademark of a committed minister is someone who is reacting in purity. And that's a life habit because that's what you're dwelling on. And you'll find that you're going to be more pure in your thought as you begin to exclude from those things, those thoughts, things that are not pure. Now, I know you get this, but this is just this last illustration. I, I just read this in my personal quiet time, so I wanted to put it up there. It's 1 John 3, 2. So, so John says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. So in other words, we're not exactly sure what we're going to look like when we get a glorified body. We're children of God, but we don't know for sure how that's all going to wash out. We have an idea. It's not like we're completely in the dark. We've talked about that when we went through 1 Corinthians 15, so I won't go through it again. But we, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So we don't know exactly what the glorified appearance will be, and, and we went through all of that. But we know we'll be like Jesus in some way, and if we know that for sure, then what? Verse 3, here it is. If you know you're going to be like Jesus, what do we do now? What's that look like now? Verse 3, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him, here's our word, purifies himself just as he is, again, Pure. So your life pattern is a pattern of purity, of keeping your life unstained from sinfulness. See, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies. It's an active involvement 
in making sure your thoughts are pure, your responses, see? If we have this hope, if we're going to be like Jesus, and we know we're going to be changed, and that's a for sure in our mind, then it plays its way out on a day-to-day basis. And that just makes sense, doesn't it? We don't, I mean, we don't want the Lord coming back and we're in the middle of impure thoughts, do we? In the moment that we're changed, we're having a thought pattern that probably wasn't honoring to him. That's not that great. And yet that could be a reality. And so if we're looking for this and we know we're going to be glorified and we're not sure exactly, but we know we're going to be like Jesus, then it's going to work its way out. If we have that hope, then we're going to purify himself just as he's pure. So your life pattern is a pattern of purity, of keeping your life unstained from sinfulness, patterns of behavior that are shameful. See? And that's a tough battle. And one that you, as I said just a minute ago, engage in every day in this defiled world. Every single day you're engaged in that. Paul was commended to them because he endured impurity. He has a life pattern of focusing on things that are pure. And his responses are impurity. And so number 10, if, we, if you're keeping track, as you think about responses to hardship... God has the same expectation of you. That's not surprising. We just read it in 1 John chapter 3. He expects you to commend yourself to the ministry in purity. And because you all have a ministry, you're all a minister of reconciliation, and every one of you is an ambassador, then that includes all of us. So no one's left out. And you do it so that there'll be no reproach and no blame and no shame, and you'll be engaged in purity, in enduring that purity to the end. So it's a continued enduring impurity. So that means it's going to be a battle, right? I mean, that's what that looks like. Let's look at the next response. So it says impurity. Then the next one is in knowledge. In knowledge. That is uh, the Greek noun gnosis. The verb form is to come to know, to arrive at understanding. So there's a definitive answer to a subject matter. You understand how knowledge works, or, and wisdom works along with it. Wisdom is the application of that knowledge. Wisdom is to take the knowledge and say, okay, with that understanding, you can make this application and go this direction in your life or whatever uh, the case may be. But knowledge is important. Obvious focus here is the Word of God. And uh, Paul's prayer for the Laodiceans, again, we'll just look at a few illustrations to get our, uh, on top of it. And, and Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it's, it's extremely insightful as to Paul's opinion on the importance of the study of the Word of God, and, and Jason read this earlier, uh, part of this uh, a little bit later in the, in the chapter, but he says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea. For all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged. So I'm struggling, I'm praying, I'm worried, Paul says, about those in Laodicea that haven't seen me. So I've had a ministry there among you. I've had some letters, but some people don't know me. And so I'm thinking of them. They haven't seen me. And my thoughts about them are that their heart may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So knowledge for the Apostle Paul means the revelation of God in Christ granted to the believer, which grounds them in the truth and which they then turn around and disseminate. Right? That makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, for knowledge for Paul, it just means you need to know what the Word of God says and the revelation of God in Christ granted to every believer 
And that grounds them in the truth. And then you begin to study the word of God and you then can turn around and disseminate that knowledge to other people. So you endure in knowledge. That's what it means. You begin to have the answers for the things in the faith. See? And Paul lists knowledge in our passage because he knows that he's been able to deal with the rigors of ministry and the hardships and the suffering because he knows what the word of God says about those things. See? And that's super important. I've told you before, when I go to the hospital to try to convince a believer who doesn't really study the Word of God that the thing they're going through is from the hand of God and he'll use it for their glory, whether it ends up in their promotion to glory or their healing, either way, if they handle it the right way, they'll be able to worship the Lord in a greater way, in a more marvelous way than they ever could before the hardship. If I'm trying to convince them after the hardship starts, that's very hard. But if you have the knowledge disseminated already to understand that nothing is apart from the hand of the Lord and that everything comes through him to you, to bring about your perfection, then it's not hard to convince you that this is for your own glory, for the glory of the Lord. See, So knowledge of the word of God and understanding that God knows the end of all of it and what God says about those things and we understand all who brings difficulty to the believer, the Lord's going to punish and we understand that uh, the reward for waiting for those who persevere and all that. See, we understand all those things. And we can put those in place. That knowledge is important. Enduring in knowledge gives us the ability to handle the highs and lows of ministry. And the word describes his understanding of divine things. So it's his commitment to sound doctrine. It's his grasp of God's redeeming love and his purposes for you. It's understanding of sinful men. So you're not surprised when people do what they do, see? Because the depth of, of sin is way greater than you can sound. And the heart, who can know it? And, and understanding of religious error. So as you begin to understand what the Word of God says, it's easy then to point out where the error is. As you hear it, it, be, it falls hard on your ears, see? And his understanding of false systems and false teachers is all based in the understanding of the Word of God. And, and his understanding of the means of effective ministry of preaching and teaching and, and discipleship and, and evangelism and, and keeping from error and it, it kept Paul from being deceived and led astray and it does the same for you. And he wasn't blown about by every wind of doctrine, Ephesians 4.14, right? And, and, and deceitful scheming of men, it's not affecting him because his course is sure. Why? Because the rudder is grounded in this wonderful stream of what the word of God says, see? So it's knowledge that endures and that helps him manage. That's the response the hardship. Later in chapter 10 uh, of 2 Corinthians, some of the church say this about Paul. They say, for they say, so some those who oppose Paul, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. That went on in a church meeting. We're talking about church. Does that shock you? Every time I read stuff, when, back in 1 Corinthians when he said, I'm going to send Timothy to you, let him dwell with you without fear. What? But th that's what happens in the church sometimes, doesn't it? The gossip thing gets going and it's churning up and pretty soon, you know, whoever it is is guilty of all this kind of stuff and, you know, they're no good and, and everybody who's left, that's his fault and all that, you know, it's just grinding away, right? And it's not based on any kind of truth, but it's, it seems to be truth, Right? So 2 Corinthians 10.10, somebody says, he writes a pretty good letter. They're weighty, but his personal presence, yeah, it's not impressive. And his speech is terrible. All you English teachers out there are going, yeah, you should think of, you should hear yourself, right? 
So chapter 11, he, he says to that this. No, you're not saying that. My wife gets to say that. She's the only one who gets to say that. She's an English teacher. 27 years. You know, that wasn't the right verb form. If I've heard that once, I've heard that 100 times. And I'm very grateful for it. Very. I love her to death because she knows that. And finally learning, 27 years. Her eighth grade class has to learn it in one year. I, I get 27. <laughs> but in 2 Corinthians 11, 6 says, but even, here's his, even if I am, he says, unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way, we've made this evident to you in all things. What's, what's he fall back on? Even if I'm not that great a speaker and you were not that impressed, you can find no fault in what? In my understanding of what the word of God says. And I gave that to you straight. And that's my response, enduring over the long haul. And that's how I go through the highs and lows, see? So this is why we emphasize in every class and in every ministry, personal study of the Word of God. We start it with Be the Church. If you went through the Be the Church, you know we started there. And we went right straight through. And you have come in here. And it wasn't a surprise to you that we go verse by verse, word by word, all the way through the Word of God, every single letter. Why? Because this is where the, this is where the power is. See, this is so you are equipped for every good work. It's so you can tell error from, uh, from truth, see? And among other things, Paul's ability to manage the highs and lows of ministry and deal with hardship with the right responses was directly connected to the knowledge of the word of God that he had and, and that commended him as a minister. And I know you know I'm gonna say this, but I think that you know this by now. I'm gonna point this out anyway. Number 11, if you're keeping track, as you think about the responses in hardship, they will be governed by our knowledge based on the degree to which we know what the word of God says. To that degree, we'll be commended as faithful ministers. So you're gonna have knowledge. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 1 says you do, right? But to the degree that you understand, you understand those things from the word of God and you grow, to that degree, you're commended, okay? So if, if you're not even sure how to find Jude, go back and start reading verse by verse all the way through the Bible, cover to cover, okay? If you can't turn to Leviticus in your Bible, because you're in there for a super long time when you're reading through the, you know, in a year, live in Levita, Leviticus, like I said last week. If you don't know where to find that, then you need to be in your word, okay? This is important stuff. And you're commended to the extent that you understand that and you do that. Okay, let's look at our next word. And you can see, this, like, like sleeplessness and hunger and labor, this is not groundbreaking stuff, is it? I'm sure I'm not revealing to you something you don't know. It's all very basic, you know, purity, holiness, you know, you are positionally holy already. And so Paul is talking about practical holiness where all of us have a difficult time. Set apart unto God and then knowledge, you know, that's... It's a spiritual gift. We understand it was active in the in early church. It's still active now, but it's also required of every believer because it comes from the word of Christ. And then this next one is a fruit of the spirit. So in order to be commended to the church as a minister of reconciliation, your response to hardship will be in patience. In patience. Macro through meta. That is the quality of self-restraint in the face of provocation. I mean, whether it's somebody taking too long or something happens that you don't like. And not only that, you know, this, this whole patience is not only self-restraint, it's not hastily retaliating or promptly punishing. It's patience and weeding. It's the opposite of anger. It's associated many times in the Word of God with mercy. It's also translated, you'll see it a lot in your Word of God, forbearance. 
That gives you another sense of it as a forbearance or long-suffering. So it's endurance and patience in, circum- in, in circumstances. You know, and a couple of illustrations there to help us grasp that. James chapter 5, verse 10. James points out, he says, As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, so hardship, right, dealing with something that's very difficult to manage, and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So think about the people who came before. We count those blessed who endured, so they stuck with it, they were patient, and did what they were supposed to do, and suffered hardship. You've heard of the endurance of Job, and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. So enduring with a responsive patience in hard times puts you in very good, what? Company. It puts you in good company. The prophets who came before, who had suffering and patience, Job himself, and it can certainly be, as, as was often the case with Paul, enduring with a responsive patience with difficult Christians. Patience with difficult Christians. People who try you constantly. People who you wouldn't have been friends with except they're in the church and it's the most diverse group on the face of the planet. So now you, not only are you associating with them and doing ministry with them, you're told to love them. See? So the Lord gets, gets his training for us right away, doesn't he? Amongst the people who go to church with you. See? In 2 Timothy 2.24, again, a great illustration of this. Um, Paul is speaking to those who are bond slaves. That applies to you, of course, because you are a bond slave of Christ. That's your relationship to him. It applies, I think, specifically here to those who lead the church, but it says this, the bond servant, anybody who has ministry of overseeing in the church, this certainly would be theirs. Verse 24 says, the bond servant must not be quarrelsome, so you're not immediately looking for an argument, uh, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, there's our word, patient when wronged, so this is, they've actually been wronged. I mean, there's a wrong been done, and it's been done to the person who's overseeing. And so you're patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. So it's not like you're being quiet the whole time. You get to say something, right? You correct those who are in opposition. And then you understand this, if perhaps God may grant them repentance. So there's a wrong and a right, and there's, this is an offended guy or girl leading this ministry. Things have been done wrong to them. They're patient, but they're able to teach and show the opposition to be wrong. And then you just trust the Lord that the God might grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So not all all responses and not all ministry uh, types and not all ministry opinions are all created equal, okay? And some are wrong. And some processes are wrong. And, And there's nothing wrong with that, okay? And there's nothing wrong with being an overseer who corrects those kinds of things. All right? You do it in that way. And then you ask the Lord to grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of what? The truth, knowledge of the truth. So, in other words, come back to a biblical understanding of how that's supposed to look. See? So, again, one of the ways you deal with difficult times is blended in with patience, isn't it? And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. That's a scary thing, isn't it? These are believers in the church being held captive temporarily by Satan to do his will and opposing somebody, and they're wrong, and the person who's leading the ministry, perhaps you, is trying to correct them, and they don't want to, right? And you pray that the Lord will lead them to a knowledge of the truth and set them free from the snare they've been temporarily captured by. So that's a scenario that plays its way out in the church a lot. But the issue really is here, patience. Be able to teach, be kind, patient when wrong. Ephesians, and that's, day, you know, just in general, the day-to-day living with one another. Ephesians 4.1, it says this, Therefore, 
I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. So that's a pretty high bar right there, right? Uh, the calling with which you've been called, the purity of the master who calls you, the one who, who uh, in all humility, didn't consider uh, equality with God was something to be grasped, but made himself a servant, right? And, and gave himself to the point of death on a cross. So that's the idea. Um, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Here it is, with all humility and gentleness. Here it is, with patience. So what's it look like? Well, you are supposed to have patience to the degree you exercise it is the degree of maturity that you have. With patience, showing tolerance for one another. So in other words, you don't even like what they're doing, but you're going to just, you're tolerating it, right? You're patient, you tolerate it in love. So it's like, oh man, here we go again. It's like, oh, well, here we go again. You know, It could be as simple as the response that you start with. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. It's never an easy matter for saints to stay and work together, ever. It's never an easy matter. You know, I've, I've quoted this old rhyme to you before. To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that would be glory. But to dwell below with the saints we know, oh, that's a different story, right? And that's where it is. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Love is what? So love's a verb. That means it acts in patience towards each other, see? Some translations have love suffers long. That's love, suffering long. Love is kind. Love does kind deeds. That's how you read that. Love does kind deeds and is not jealous. Love does not brag. It's not arrogant. You can see macrothumia mostly has to do with a response to people who generate the hardship. It's mostly to people. It could be patience in difficult times. And so that's your enduring response to patience in difficult times. But a lot of it has to, it really kind of orientates around people, see? And people do test your patience, don't they? Paul had to deal with the ignorance and, and the stupidity and the sinfulness and, and, and with the hard people and the weak people, right? And, and he had to deal with the unruly and he had to deal with the judgmental and with the critical and with the narrow-minded and with the hostile and with the deadly who wanted to kill him, right? And he bore the marks of that and he had to deal with the gossipers, he had to deal with slanderers, and he had to deal with the poor and the educated, the uneducated and the moral and the immoral and he had to deal with the faint-hearted and with the bullheaded and all of that. And Paul commends himself to the church because in all of it, he was patient. Patient because he knew he had ministry among them, the ministry of reconciliation and the only way he was gonna be able to do that was to be dealing in patience. And he always remembered the patience of God that was shown to him, see? And that's a great place to start if you're a little short of patience with people who are annoying to you or get under your skin or say things that bother you or gossip about you or whatever it is. And I've just found if you just wait it out, a lot of times the gossiper will turn around to be someone who apologizes. Just hang on and deal with it in patience. But 1 Timothy 1.15, he says this, it's a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among, Paul says, among whom I am foremost. I'm in the number one spot, see? Yet, for this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, mark this, mark this, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect what? I got saved, Paul says, and that demonstrates what kind of patience we're talking about here. Paul the provoker, right? Paul the blasphemer. Jesus endured, Paul says, 
Paul's arrogant pride and blasphemy, his rampages and his persecution of believers that was never far from Paul's mind that the patience shown to him was the exemplary patience that he wanted to respond to ministry with, see? And so Paul knew what it looked like to endure in patience, especially with this Corinthian church. And he tells them that this patience with them, and they know this has to be the case, but certainly doesn't say it. I've been patient with you and that really commends me to you. You just say, look, I'm, I'm patient, okay? I'm enduring and patient, and I'm committed to you because I am. And it's never far from my mind that the Lord was very patient with me. And that's how I got saved, see? And I know you know this, and it's a fruit of the Spirit. But number 12, if you're keeping track and dealing with hardships in the highs and lows of ministry, God requires this response of enduring patience in difficult times and hardship and difficult people. If you want to make it through, you're going to have to have patience as part of of that response and you do have the ability to have patience and to the sen- and to the degree that you're manifesting it that's the degree that you're committed see and you are the recipient of the patience of God so don't think it's just Paul second peter 3:15 regard the patience of our lord what as salvation how did i get saved well ultimately it was the patience of the lord because he certainly could have taken me for any of the wicked deeds I did before I was saved. And he would be completely justified in doing it. The fact that people blaspheme the Lord and live the next second is his patience. He has no obligation whatsoever to spare anyone who directly sins against him. No obligation whatsoever. He is over all things, controls all things. He has made all things, including the ones who are blaspheming him. And yet in his patience, we regard that as what? Salvation. Now we know how salvation comes, but patience is what gave us the opportunity to response, to have a response. You came to faith as a result of that patience. So you can't be commended to the church through this response and also, beloved, let people exasperate you to the point where you set aside the ministry of reconciliation and you walk off, okay? Let's just be clear. You let people exasperate you and then you just decide you're not going to do ministry anymore, then you are not displaying that to the degree that you're supposed to, okay? I mean, we can't really come away with anything besides that. In our culture today, we are so quick to bring that habit from, from life into the church, you know? It comes in from marriages. You know, if someone doesn't fulfill your desires like you expected, you know, you're done. You're not having patience with this. I'm not waiting this out to see if it gets any better. I'm, I'm just... I'm putting this off. See, that comes into the church. We, we bring that attitude. You know, blowing off employment. You know, employers that don't fulfill our expectations or do things differently than we would. That's it. I'm not doing this anymore. I mean, the leadership is not like I would like him to be, so I'm out. Instead of patiently doing your ministry and digging in and getting in the harness and making sure it happens, okay? A lot of bad habits come in from the workplace and the world that have no place in the church, in labors and all of that, and also in patience. See, we're quick to blow off and move on. Paul endured people who caused him personal pain, who inflicted wounds on his own body. He endured those people who caused him grief, who gossiped about him, people who broke his heart, and he endured patiently. And you have to know this. He expects that. The Lord expects that of you too. As we prepare to close for today, again, it may seem strange to our ears at first that these things we've studied so far are so integral to approved ministry because they aren't groundbreaking. Okay? We're not talking somebody who can expound some certain thing and they're so... They're so, uh, so creative in all of this. It has nothing to do with those things. I mean, the Lord can use those talents, but it really has to do with the very basics, right? 
You know, we're just so used to expecting Christianity to be the ticket to a blessed life. And, and when we say that, you know, we mean, you know, all the comforts and protections that I've always wanted in life. And then Christianity provides that for me. But the reality of the passage so far and, and through the end of, of this section is a reminder that the ministry of reconciliation and the proclamation of the word of reconciliation by the ambassadors of Jesus Christ leads to extreme reactions to it. See? When you truly become an ambassador and you are a minister of reconciliation, there will be extreme reactions to your stance. And it should not surprise you to find out in the course of the ministry God has given you that you will sometimes be the most disliked person in the ministry and other times the most loved. You may be the most disliked person sometimes at work and, and maybe perhaps the most loved at the same time. They love your hard work because you adorn the gospel with that hard work, and they hate you because you're a believer. And that's, that's not a far-fetched, see? That's part of the, that's part of the ironies of, of being, a, being a believer, right? just seems like contradictions, most loved, most hated, right? And it just depends. I mean, it's the nature of the ministry of reconciliation and ambassadorship that those who hear the gospel repent and believe, they'll love the messenger, when you give the gospel out and somebody repents and believes, they, are, they love you. They're so grateful that you have given them an opportunity to repent and believe. And, and while those who hear the gospel and still cherish their sin and reject the message will also reject the messenger, see? Or, or believers who want to walk in sinfulness and you want to speak truth in their life and they hate you for it because they want to justify why they're where they are, see? That should not surprise you in the least. And if you have an opportunity to speak truth, you're supposed to, see? Even to the point of grabbing somebody out of the fire. That's what Jude says, right? To the very moment. So these are important things, beloved. Jesus warned his followers in Luke 6, 26. He said this, and I've encouraged myself with this many times. Probably you have too. Woe unto you when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. What's it mean? When everybody thinks you're great, you're in very bad company, okay? That means you're standing for nothing, you, you're really proclaiming nothing, and everybody's comfortable, right? You're the Joel Olstein of Christianity. Everybody's happy, and 52,000 people on Sunday come and be happy. <clears throat> Woe unto you, when all men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets the same way. The false prophets, everybody loved them. Because he said everything everybody wanted to hear, nothing they didn't want to, see? In other words, everybody's speaking well of you. You're not in good company. In fact, you're in the company of the false prophets. And, and the expected response to a faithful ministry is not going to be popularity necessarily. It's not going to be to have all men speak well of you, but rather to follow the path of our Lord Jesus, who was at once the most beloved and the most hated. See, So when we read Paul's revealing his heart, how he keeps his balance in the highs and lows and becomes very relevant when we're actually doing the ministry as it's supposed to be done, it's wonderful when people recognize the value of godly teaching and when they recognize the worth of reproof. And when you come to somebody and you correct them and they, they, they value that, but it's a back and forth thing, see. And if you haven't experienced those types of things, I would pro propose to you that probably you haven't been ministering like the Lord would have you minister and you've missed some opportunities to speak truth when you should have. And, and my prayer for you is that you'll engage with those around you as an ambassador and as a minister of reconciliation because it is typically the experience of the minister who confronts lost sinners with warnings of divine judgment 
and who confronts sinning believers with warnings of divine chastening to be loved and hated. And, and in fact, the ones who preach the gospel should expect to be treated like Jesus himself was treated. And we see Jesus' words in John 15, 20. He gives us both sides. He says, remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also what? Persecute you. So there's, there's the negative side, right? There's the hated part. And what's the other part? And if they kept my word, they'll keep yours too. So you're just following along after Jesus. And the people who would keep his word will hear yours and keep it. And the people who hated him, they'll hate you. If you're, if you're, if you're convincing the people who hated Jesus to love you, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong camp. Okay? So there's going to be both sides of the pendulum, right? It's going to swing back and forth. And we're going to actually get into that later in this, in this uh, chapter, really starting in verse 8. We see kind of the conundrum that's there of, you know, glory and dishonor, right, and all that stuff. It's like happens at the same time. And Paul doesn't ignore, you know, that observation. It's going to be swinging both ways. So my prayer for you is that you will find in this section of 2 Corinthians management tools so that when you have disappointing responses from the people God sent to you to minister to, uh, the correct expectations of hardship, so that you're not surprised. You're not surprised when you speak the truth in love, okay? And when they respond badly. I don't want to talk to him. I feel uncomfortable or whatever. I don't want to talk to her. She makes me feel uncomfortable. You should take that as a badge of honor, okay? If you're speaking the truth in love, somebody who's walking in sinfulness doesn't want to talk to you, that's good. That's not a bad thing, okay? doesn't mean they don't get to hear what you have to say. You still want to give an opportunity to do that. But if they don't want to hear it, that's probably a good thing. And today and next time, the types of heart responses you'll need to make it through, we're going to talk about. But they really are to equip you for this irony we've seen in ministry. And, and uh, these things are not geared for a super Christian, whatever that classification may be. These things are, are part of the preparation that sanctification brings to the life of the believer to equip them for the highs and the lows in the ministry of reconciliation, the position of an ambassador of Christ. So as we said many times before, they will be true in the life of the believer, and so the manifestation then is a matter of degree, and we want that degree to be great. Okay? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for uh, time in the Word. Thank you for the joy of ministry together. Thank you for uh, the church class. Thank you for uh, the time of worshiping you with Alex leading and, and Bill and uh, proclaiming your, your attributes. We thank you for the time of prayer. We put ourselves in a position humbly before you, knowing we, you are the giver of all things. We, we own nothing, we have nothing, and there is nothing we can do apart from you. For worship and giving by sacrificially and faithfully giving of what we have, we recognize and worship you, as the scripture says, recognizing by doing that that you've given us all things. And it all belongs to you. It's only loaned to us, and we thank you for that opportunity too. And for the time in the Word today, where we just break it apart and let it do its work because it is powerful and quick and sharp and divides soul and spirit, joint and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And you did that today, Father. I trust because you always say you do it when the word goes out and it doesn't come back to you void of accomplishing for the purpose you sent it. And so, Lord, we were grateful for that. And whatever hardship that caused us temporarily today in the service, Lord, as we wrestled with those things, I pray that we'll work out and come out on the right side, struggling as it will as, as we see uh, persevering in patience and, and, uh, and in knowledge and in purity, making those responses the ones we want in the ups and downs of ministry. 
That's our prayer today, Father. I pray that you'll work that out as you see fit. That we will be willing servants, bond servants of yours, doing what you say, even the hard things, so that we might find commendation before the church and the ministry that we do and also before you. you. Keep track of all these things. And when we're doing that, of course, is remember building with gold, silver, precious stones. Things that last. That's what we want, Father. Things that last. And we give you praise today. And all God's people said, amen.